Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Women's Bible Study. It is good to be with all of you both here and those who are at home watching online. Can everybody hear? No? Thank you, Chris. What about now? Can you hear me now? Is it better? Yes? Yes? Okay, good. Great. Okay, well, welcome. Glad everyone's here this morning on this frigid morning, but I will say it's supposed to be 71 on Thursday, so things are looking up. Even though they're probably going to go back down again, it does my heart good. Um, We have a lot to cover this morning. This is a full chapter, so let me pray, and we will jump right in. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for your word. Help us to taste and see that you are good this morning, Father. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to you. I pray that you would fill this space, but that you would also fill the spaces of those who are watching online, that your presence would be thick both in this room and in the rooms that they are sitting in. May all outside distractions flee, Father. May our hearts rest at the sound of your word. Teach us more of yourself, Lord. I pray that I would disappear and that you would be made great. That these words would be yours and just that this morning would be glorifying to you. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so this chapter, chapter 9, this is after chapter 8 where we see Peter declare who Jesus is. Jesus being the Christ. And so as we've talked about how Mark is this incredible literary writer, as well as this gospel writer, that that verse 829 is the direct middle of the gospel. And so the middle of the gospel is that Peter declaring Jesus is the Christ. And we've talked about this this whole year that Mark's whole goal is that we would know Jesus as the Christ and what that means for the world, but that also for us. And so, so chapter 9, G- Jesus has just foretold his death and resurrection. Remember, Peter told him, no, no, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because those words, if, if Christ did not die and rise again, then what's the point of anything? And so we see in chapter 9 this story moving on from this declaration of Jesus as Christ, but we're going to see that people still don't get it. But we're also going to talk about why that is and the importance of that. And we're just going to see these deep truths keep working out. Mark 9, 10, 11, and 12, we are moving towards Jerusalem. We're moving towards Jerusalem, and so we're also moving towards the cross. And so the conversations are going to get more serious because the stakes are ever so high. So let's dive in. Mark 9, 1, it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you. So he's just talked about how he has to suffer and die. Mark 9, and truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so he is saying to them that you, before you die, will see this happen. But what what do those words mean? And so then later it goes on in verse 2, it says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John the special three, Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So this is whiter than white. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Bless Peter. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So this is a really crazy scene, right? I'm sure that if it happened today, because we have the technology today, it was almost like something from some crazy movie. But here are Peter, James, and John up on this mountain with Jesus, and he is transfigured into this radiant being, angel-like in description. And I love how Mark tells us that his clothes were so white that it's whiter than any bleach could make them white. And then Elijah and Moses were there. These two great figures from the Old Testament, from their scriptures, from our scriptures, and they were talking with Jesus. And so what does this all mean? Like what, this is a crazy moment. So what did it mean for them? But what does it truly mean for us? And in truth, Moses and Elijah, they represent the law and the prophets. So even though Elijah didn't write anything, he was, he's considered one of the most powerful prophets that there ever was. And even more significant than that, it was how Moses and Elijah, they both made unusual departures from earth. We see that in Deuteronomy 34 and 2 Kings 2, they just kind of disappeared. And Luke tells us that they were talking to Jesus about his departure. And so Mark, because he is, he is blunt often, he's just giving us the facts, right? Well, Luke tells us that on the mountain, because Mark says here they were talking to Jesus. Luke gives us this little snippet that they're talking to Jesus about his departure. The literal word, Jesus' exodus from the earth, which would bring to fulfillment, which would happen and be brought to fulfillment in Jerusalem. That happens in Luke 9. Moses led God's people to the promised land, and Elijah was the, the expected sign of the kingdom. So these two, these two men could have been, were the perfect ministers to Jesus to talk about what he was about to go through. This mountain that they were on in all of Scripture, mountains were places of divine revelation. We see in, in Genesis 22, Mount Moriah. This is where God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And we know that he provides the ram instead. We also see in Mount Sinai in Exodus, this is the giving of the law. So Moses talks with God on the mountain in, in Exodus. And then in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is also on a mountain, Mount Horeb. And he's also talking with God. And so this is a moment, this is a, a pinnacle moment in this gospel where it is a mountain moment that everyone reading this would have been in all of it. Because once again, Elijah and Moses were on a mountain talking with God, the Son incarnate, 
they were talking with him and talking about his departure in, 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 his, in his exodus. What I love about the story about Elijah when in 1 Kings 10, this is when there's the, the fire and the storm and the thunder, and God keeps asking him, am I in that? No. Am I in that? No. But then there's this whisper, and God's in the whisper. So God is in that, in that silent moment. And so here we have another beautiful moment on a mountain with the Lord and these men and the clouds. So there's the, the clouds around when the voice came out, the voice came out of the cloud. All throughout scripture, as, you, as we read through all the way from Genesis all the way through, whenever clouds are mentioned, they are also, often, often symbols of the divine presence. We see this in Exodus 13 and 19 and 33, and then also in Numbers 9. And remember when, even when Abraham made his original covenant with God, back in Genesis, the smoking pot, this cloud of smoke goes through the divided animals pieces. That was God in the presence of this cloud of smoke going through them. So God was saying in that covenant, if this covenant's broken, let this happen to me. So we see this voice coming out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, much like when he was baptized in those baptismal waters. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the brightness of the garments, the brightness of the garments, we see, that we see this Shekinah glory, this divine presence that was also there in Exodus in the pillar of fire. Pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, right? This divine, holy presence on this mountain. And truly the transfiguration that we see here is an immediate yet intermediate ffillment of Jesus' words in 9-1. Remember at the beginning, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God and coming in power. Peter, James, and John witnessed the presence of God on holy earthly ground. But this isn't, we're in this moment where there's oftentimes in scripture, there's an immediate fulfillment, but it's not the complete fulfillment, right? It hasn't fully happened yet. But it's this immediate response to Jesus's words at the beginning of the chapter. Now there's an interesting turn here as soon as soon as Elijah and Moses leave and are gone and the cloud is gone and Jesus' garments have faded, as they were coming down the mountain, he charges them to tell no one what they have seen. Now throughout the gospel, we, we've seen Jesus say, do not say, don't tell anyone, hide yourself, don't proclaim this. But in this word in 9-9, in nine, nine, it changes slightly because he says he, char he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until, meaning there's going to be a time when you should tell, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. And so here Mark gives us this glimpse and this truth because why aren't people getting who he is? I mean, if we knew scripture the way that they knew scripture back then, because that's all they had to read, right? Or have read to them. If they knew who Elijah and Moses were, 
right? And if God's voice, audible voice was saying, this is my son, right? Sometimes I wish for the audible voice of God, but I dare say I would probably still not get whatever I needed to hear, right? They heard the audible voice of God coming out of a cloud. And Jesus was radiant like an angel, and they still weren't getting it. But why was that? And here in this one verse, Mark tells us why. The reason they haven't gotten who Jesus really is, is because the only way that we can know who Jesus really is, is when we see him suffer, die, and rise again. It is not until Jesus has risen from the dead that the truth of who he is is able to be grasped. He has been telling them, I am going to suffer, I am going to die, and I'm going to rise again, and they don't understand. And in truth, the only way that we understand who the Christ is is when we acknowledge what he's done for us, right? What do we say when we take our first communion? What do we say if you're being confirmed? You are saying, Jesus has died for me. I am a sinner. He's died for me. We have to admit that. And it's when we actually see that and know that, that we understand what he's truly done for us. And so I love the way that Mark writes because he's not coming down hard on the disciples because he's being honest and saying that everyone, Everyone has to look on Jesus and see him suffer, die, and rise again to truly understand what it means to know him and love him. And so the disciples, they're questioning what it might mean, this rising from the dead. And honestly, if somebody came to me and say, hey, Katie, I'm going to die tomorrow, but in three days I'm going to rise again. Because I'm a Christian, I have a frame of reference for that, but it would still be a little odd to hear, right? I've never seen that happen, right? When somebody dies, they're, they're gone. So their question, what is this rising from the dead? Even though they have the theology for it and the understanding for it, it's a hard word to grasp because they haven't seen it happen yet. Verse 11, and he asked them, why did the scribes say that Elijah came first? And he says to them, Elijah came first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written to him. So Jesus is saying here, Elijah has come, this, this wording about Elijah, because the thought was that when Elijah came back, the kingdom would come. And we know now that that was a partial fulfillment, but not the complete fulfillment because Elijah was not Jesus, but what he's saying here is that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. John was his Elijah. John came and proclaimed the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. He called for repentance of sins, and then he was killed for it. In the same way, in the same way that Jesus is also coming. So the way of the kingdom, the way of the cross, was declaring it, but then also suffering for it and dying for it. And so he was using their words, using scriptural words to say this is happening. It's partially happening, but it's going to actually happen in complete fulfillment. Do you not see the signs? And so they're coming down this mountain, right? 
much like coming down the mountain from a retreat, they've had this retreat high, right? Probably the best retreat high ever because they actually saw Elijah and Moses and heard the word of God coming out of a cloud. And when they came to the disciples, the other disciples who were not up on this mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing, arguing with them. And immediately all of the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted them. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Okay, so Jesus has been up on the mountain and, and he's, remember, he's already given the disciples authority over unclean spirits. That happened before the transfiguration. So he's already given them the authority to do these things. So he goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, has this transfiguration moment, this kingdom moment, and then comes down the mountain, and his disciples aren't able to cast out this demon. And he answers them in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus has this moment, much like Moses coming down the mountain, Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. Remember, he's up getting the law, right? Having this incredible moment with the Lord. He brings the law down and they're worshiping the golden calf, right? They knew that Moses was up talking to God and Moses comes down the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf, and he throws the tablets down. And so Jesus, too, he comes down this mountain, he comes down the mountain, he's left his disciples ministering, and here they are unable to do something he's given them the power to do. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Right? Not forever, right? Physically. How long, how long am I to bear with you? He had this moment of, of exasperation with them. And so verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. We see that say every time the spirit comes in contact with Jesus, they, they have a little riot within the bodies that they're possessing. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said to him, from childhood, from childhood. And it is often cast him into the fire and into, into the water to destroy him. Where we've talked about that, that the, the, the evil spirits, the unclean spirits, their whole bent in life is to destroy life. And so this, this spirit within this boy has been trying to destroy him since he's been there. But if you can do anything, this is the father speaking, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, right? All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cries out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that might be the most honest prayer or request of the Lord in Scripture. Right? I believe. And even in my hardest, weakest moments, right? I know Jesus. I know the truth. I know scripture, but I'm also human, right? And, and doubt can creep in anywhere. 
And so in those moments, have the strength, have the courage, have the humility, allow that desperation. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Help my doubt. Help me to believe that I believe that I believe. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd, when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, like dead, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, right? They didn't ask him in public. They asked him privately because they were probably embarrassed. Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so here Mark gives us this little glimpse. And we're going to see more of the heart of the disciples in just a moment, but that the one, the absolute power of prayer. When you commune with God, you are communing with the resurrection power of the creating Lord who holds all things in his hands. The same God holding the earth on its axis is the same God holding your life on its, like on its axis. He is the same God who helps you breathe as who helps us make decisions, who also watches over us while we sleep, right? That power, that's who you're talking to, right? But then it also, Jesus saying, but by prayer, were they casting it out in faith, right? The prayer of the dad, I believe, but help my unbelief. I dare say, did the disciples doubt in their actions? The power of prayer, the power of who we're talking to, do you believe that? Pray in belief. And if there's doubt, ask for help and say, help my unbelief. And he'll answer. He'll answer. And so, the disciples asked that question in private, and, and Mark goes on to say, and they went on from there and passed through Galilee. So remember, they're on, this, they're on this trajectory towards Jerusalem. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So this was a private teaching moment. He was trying to have these intimate moments with his disciples, because they still had a lot to learn. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. So he keeps telling them what's about to happen. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And I think this is one of the most dire moments for them. Rather than taking their misunderstanding, rather than taking their doubt, or their just lack of knowing what was going on, they kept it a secret. They didn't ask him to explain it more. They didn't say, hey, we're not getting this. Can you help me understand? And so the question for us is that when we hear the word of God, 
do you take, because I mean, there's so much to learn, right? The more you learn about God, you're going to realize the more you don't know and that there's still more to learn. And so when you hear him or read something, you read something that he's saying and you don't understand it, do we hide that? Right? They didn't ask him. They were walking with him. They actually had him physically right there and they could have just asked and they didn't. And they kept that doubt a secret and we're going to see that secret doubt play out as they keep going towards Jerusalem with him. And in fact, in verse 33, we see, and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So rather than asking or discussing what he's talking about, right? Talking about the suffering servant. He goes, what were you talking about on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued, once again, keeping silent, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, because he knew what they were talking about, right? He knew what they were talking about. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. And he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me, receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So like whoever receives Jesus is also receiving God, right? Three in one, Trinity. Now what he's saying here is that our culture upholds children, right? Children are celebrated. They are a gift. They run our households. Like children are, have a much higher standing in culture today than they did back then. Children were, were seen and not heard. They had very, very low social standings, right? And so the fact, it is, it is like saying, Jesus saying, if you're first, your last, the last shall be first. It's that backwards for him saying, receive me like this child. Like if you don't receive this child, like it didn't make sense to them because children weren't thought of back then. And I love the way that Mark writes because in verses 30 through 32, Jesus is talking like about this complete selflessness, right? The Son of Man is going to be delivered, the suffering servant, the way of the cross, right? And then in 33 through 37, there's this absolute self-absorption. Who's going to be the greatest, right? And so now we kind of understand why the disciples had a hard time casting out the demon if this was in their heart. They were more worried about who was the greatest disciple as opposed to the truths of the kingdom and what it truly means to believe. And isn't that so true about the heart of a child? And we're going to see this in the next chapter where Jesus is talking about children, right? Um, in our house, um, I've talked about it before, there's this loop, right? Highly recommend them for, for young boys, and they just run laps. And um, Evie and Charlie get really competitive about running these laps, right? Evie is, you know, a foot taller than Charlie, and so she always wins. But in, if you're running in a circle, 
sometimes I can be like, no, Charlie, you're in front where really Evie's lapped him. Um, and Charlie gets really angry that Evie beats him. And I'm like, buddy, at some point you're going to be bigger than Evie and faster than Evie and you're going to beat her. But right now is not that time. It does not work with a, with a six-year-old boy, five-year-old boy. Um, but Henry, Henry, he will, um, you know, he gets going with his little arms and his legs and he's, he's a very stout little boy. And um, he doesn't ever win, right? He has absolutely no idea that they are lapping him, right? And he'll be like, okay, mommy, say it. And I'll be like, get set, ready, set, go. And he'll like take two seconds to start. And he like starts going and he'll just like run this lap. And Evie and Charlie will lap him and lap him. But as Henry runs around that house, he goes, I'm winning, I'm winning. And it's just this sweet heart that he doesn't really care, right? He doesn't care what place he's in, really. He's just a part of it, whereas Charlie is doggedly aware of who's, who's in front and who's behind. But this heart of Henry, and trust me, I'm not saying he's perfect. He's a two-year-old boy. But in that moment, that purity of heart, that, that pureness of not carrying his place, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The way of Jesus, this suffering servant, this one that we have to know, to know him is to see him suffer, die, and rise again, is to lay your life down. It's actually to put everyone else before you, right? When he came down the mountain and he asked the question, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you, right? How long do we bear with those around us? Because often those who are bearing with are behind or are carrying, right? They're not out in front. And truly, the best leaders aren't those out in front, but they're the, the ones who are pushing everyone from behind, right? Whoever receives me, but not me, but him who sent me. So he's trying, he's trying to tell them. He's trying to tell them about the heart of following him. Verse 38, John, still not getting it, says, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. So now we see not only are they self-absorbed, but they're also exclusive. Like they are fully aware that they are Jesus's disciples and not everyone else's right? So they saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. But Jesus says to him, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able, will, will soon be able afterward to speak e evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What he's saying here is that they would not be able to cast out demons in my name if they weren't one of us too. There is a greater picture going on, John, than what you can see. And so then he goes on to say, verses 42, he starts talking about the cost of discipleship. The, the crux of it. Whoever causes one of these little ones, the children are still there, 
who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown out to sea. Now that, that punishment was actually a Roman punishment. They would actually tie stones to people's necks and toss them off cliffs into the water so that they would drown. So it was a very visual, applicable lesson. Um, crazy, but Jesus was trying to get their attention. And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquestionable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, so this is very, very dramatic language. And in the original language, in the way that it's written, it is, it's, he's not being literal. He's trying to get their attention. But what he's saying is that sin is to be opposed at all costs. All sin should be opposed at all costs. Jesus is not actually, and sometimes these have been used the wrong way, or people who would take these words from Jesus and be like, how can Jesus tell someone to do that to themselves? He's, th this wording is not literal. He is, but he is being literal and saying that this is how serious sin is in your life. And I dare say, we, if you go through and read the Old Testament, you realize how dirty sin is. Everything that had to happen in order to be forgiven for your sins in the Old Testament, how many animals had to die every day, right? If we were still under that system, this carpet would be red because the only way for Giorgio to go before the, go before the Lord would be to first kill an animal for his sins, but then also kill one for all of our sins. And guess what? We wake up sinners tomorrow too, right? Sin is a very, the wages of sin are death. All sin. Even, even the self-absorption and exclusiveness of the disciples. Right? It, the heart matters, sure. Don't, don't, you know, steal or murder or you know, beat somebody, like don't be horrible on the outside. But also there's a lot of nastiness on the inside, right? Gossip and slander and all of the things, anxiety, worry, doubt, like all of that stuff. Deep, unrelenting anger and unforgiveness. All sin should be opposed at all costs, right? And at the end where it's talking about for everyone will be salted with fire, it's that first Peter one language talking about how faith is purified in fire like gold, right? So everyone is going to be purified, but which fire is it that you'll end up with? Because the, the, the purification fire purifies your faith, right? So then he goes on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, back then and, and now, 
but they were two old historical cultural truths about salt. First, the world, like the world would not survive without salt, right? It was salt was so important in their culture. I think today I probably could lower my sodium intake, right? But back then they didn't have preservatives, right? So today, to me, salt is something that I use to flavor my food. They use salt to keep their, their food edible, right? To keep it, make it last. It was also cleansing, right? It was the number one way that they healed wounds. So the world couldn't survive without salt, but then also salt from the Dead Sea, which they were very close to, could lose its saltiness. So this wording that Jesus is talking about would speak to them because they know how important salt is, but the salt around them could lose the salt, its saltiness. And once that happened, it was worthless. Like it didn't, it didn't do anything. It didn't do anything. And so Jesus is speaking to the both of these truths in light of the demanding requirements of discipleship. So he is, he's using these two truths about salt to speak to what it truly means to be a disciple. He's speaking to everything that has been said in this chapter, right? And Lane, Lane oh, and a wonderful theologian, he, just, he says the disciples have an eschatological responsibility and eschatology is the theology of judgment, the final judgment, and what happens to you in your soul. So they have this responsibility toward men in the world, which is subject to the judgment of God. So the disciples had responsibility toward the men in the world, which the world is subject to the, to the judgment of God. Jesus warns them that they can lose that salt-like quality, which can mean life for the world. Here, salt typifies that, that quality, which is the distinctive mark of the disciple, the loss of which would make him worthless. So he is taking their conversation about who's the greatest, who has the most worth, and he's turning it upside down. It's not about the outward Look, it's not about, about your actions, about, it's what's on the inside of you. The distinctive mark of the disciple. And he's calling them to guard their salt-like quality and be at peace with one another. What sets them apart from each other is not rank or worth, but their quality of their saltness, right? And so the question for us, and I would say ever so much more in the culture that we live in today, the times that we're living in today, 2022, man, as a church as a whole, the universal capital C church, but then also Redeemer, our church family, but then also Christians across the world, we are to be in the world, but not of it. And have we lost our saltiness to be both light, but also, also that healing, preservative nature of what it means to be a disciple? That's what he's saying. He's saying that the disciples were vital, right? Without salt, they wouldn't have made it very long back then right? So as God's image bearers in the kingdom, 
right? If he is the king, the image bearer tells the world what type of king we follow. But then we also, as we go out, you are salt to an aching, dying world. Who needs you? Like your faith is needed. And so when we have moments of doubt, we cling to him and say, help our unbelief, right? Help our unbelief. And so in this cost of discipleship, right? It is this dogged, opposing, anti-sin stance in the world that is also salt and light for it, right? And so as we move forward in chapter 10, we're going to see even more deeper lessons from Jesus to his disciples. But as we've said, each week, it gets a little bit more intense because each week we get that much closer, that much closer to the cross. But how fitting is it as we move into Lent here in a couple weeks to really start thinking about when we think of Jesus, do you see the truth of him coming, suffering, dying, and rising again for you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your good, good word to us. Lord, help us to see your fingerprints on our lives. Lord, I pray that you would stoop low and that you would breathe on us, that you would help our unbelief, help us to believe truly and deeply in you. Help us to be salt and light in this world, Father. I just, I pray for my friends and they're going out and they're coming in. I pray that you would protect them in the coming days and that you would bring us all back together again next week. Amen. Thank you.